Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Dong Tran, founder of Rivet, who make electric motorbikes in California. I've not covered a whole heap of motorbikes on the show, but that's going to be changing, and I have a bunch more planned for next year. There's a few really interesting things about Rivet and what they're doing. Firstly, they've got a very unique new metal folding technique for frame design, which if you listen to Horace and how he talks about how manufacturing techniques dictate how products evolve, has a lot of potential in offering both a lower cost and more innovative vehicle design, but also a far more flexible company structure because you don't need such high capex to be able to build a factory. Secondly, they're about to go into production for about only a million dollars raised in total, which in this game of hardware manufacturing is a very low number. And thirdly, they've also just been the recipients of a $20 million CalCompete grant in California, which is one of the largest grants that I've ever seen given to a micromobility company. is non-dilutive and I think really exciting for the future of the industry. I hope it is only the first of many that I get to cover on the show uh, as we see more funding come from the EV space where there's a lot of free money being given out at the moment into the micromobility space. I really like Dong and his attitude and it's a pleasure to be able to bring you this conversation with him. And with that, here he is. Let's go. And welcome back to micromobility. Uh, we have with us today Dong Tran from Rivet. How are you going today, Dong? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm doing really well. Like uh, just getting ourselves sorted for micromobility world. It's a it's a it's a busy time of year. Obviously, setting into the Christmas break as well. So exactly. Hey, well, look, this has been like I I saw the news about you guys and the really exciting kind of update about the new funding that you'd managed to to unlock out of uh, out of the government and I through this grant program and and I thought you know there's we've had a lot of discussions in the past around the opportunities that exist for micromobility to be able to harness like non-dilutive equity sources if they can find them. And this was a kind of perfect example. And then David uh, from Wheel managed to connect us. So I wanted to just kind of take us, I wanted to actually start with what you've built and what, and why you're doing what you're doing at Rivet and, and a little bit more about the vehicles and that sort of stuff. But then I want to talk about the other elements as well, because I, th- I think that's super important. And I hope that there are some lessons that the rest of the industry can learn from you and what you've done and, and that sort of thing. Sounds great. So, so maybe what we do is we just start like, who are you? You know, where did, where did you start? How did you end up going and starting Rivet? Yeah. So well, before we, we start, I, I, uh, I wanted to make a slight correction on the name. It's actually Rivet. Oh, but yes. Okay. But yep, our, our friends across the pond always calls it Rivet. So they're much, yeah. <laughs> and we're okay with it because it's, you know, when, when we came up with the name, that was, that was kind of. Some some people are going to call it Rivet, which is okay. Yeah. And uh, so so Rivet, you know, uh, I'm an engineer uh, by by education. Uh, originally, I, I went to school for mechanical engineering, and I got into automotive design pretty early on. After I finished engineering school, I, I kind of looked out there. What I really wanted to do was actually design cars. Mechanical engineering happens to be the path that my high school teacher kind of pushed me into. Right? You want to design cars? Go be, become a mechanical engineer. And um, yeah. You know, bless, bless his heart. I, I think when I said car design, I don't think he realized that I meant more of the creative side of, of automotive design, right? Mm-hmm. To to create products and and overall products and how they look and feel, how how the people uses the product, rather than just individual components or getting into the very details. So, post engineering, I got out. I did a little bit of work with engineering, and then went straight to design school uh, over in Detroit. Uh, there's two schools right in, in the states. There's Art Center, and then there's College for Creative Studies in Detroit that that are known for automotive design. Mm-hmm. Went there for another four years. <laughs> so wow! <laughs> but your parents were stoked. <laughs> well, they were. They loved it. You know, it's, it's, you know it, it's weird, right? We, I come from a from a Vietnamese family, and so so education has always been a really important aspect of of how we're raised. But I was lucky enough to to have parents that really did not push me into any direction uh yep. they, they really fully supported and so when you know when i told them i 
I'm not going to do engineering anymore. I'm going to go and, and try and do this thing that nobody really talks about or knows about. They didn't freak out as much as, as they could have. Uh, yeah. And so I think that that enabled me to explore what I really wanted to do. Four years of school, pretty tough for design school. is probably one of the toughest things that, that I've been through just because it's, it's very competitive to get into that environment and, and be able to excel at, at automotive design. And so, you know, after the four years, I moved out here to California in 09, no less, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the wow. first time. Beautiful time. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful time to graduate, right? Uh, you know, of course, everything has a lot of luck involved uh, in terms of, of being able to get to, to where I got. And one of the biggest thing was, you know, uh, the guy from, from Honda, who, who was my first employer, he happens to be in the area and wanted to stop by the school just to to check out the, some some work from the students and you know I I fully took that opportunity to to show something that I actually normally don't do which is interior design mm. it's something that I I'm, I'm an exterior design student that's that's what I learned at school and so I kind of spent the entire night before he came and, and put up a bunch of work the the reason I'm getting into this is is it kind of it has to do a lot with with what Rivet really is and and how we're able to get here in a really lean manner, right? With with very little resources. The opportunity showed up and, and I realized at that point that was the only opportunity that we're ever gonna have. Mm. Everyone came in that year and said, you know, we're here to look, we're not gonna hire. Mm. And and Mike Sai from Honda, he was the only one that had a little bit of possibility, right? They might have one position open. Mm. So put my best foot forward and, and next thing you know, I, I got to talking to Mike and and about two or three weeks later, I was hired by Honda, and that kind of kickstart this whole journey on on how we got here. Mm. Uh, so, worked for Honda for a little bit. Uh, realized pretty quickly that you know I, I'm a little more entrepreneurial. I, I do want to do things uh, a certain specific way, and and the only way to, to get to do that is to try and come up and do something myself. But I, I knew that I didn't have the right experience, mm. right? I just came out of school. Yeah. Actually, during the interview, Mike Sai asked me, what do you see yourself doing in five years? And, and I remember telling him and the whole team that was interviewing me, is, is, I told him, I want to get as much as I can from Honda and then go and start my own company. Yep. Which which was interesting in that, hindsight. That takes chutzpah, you know, because... you know in, a, in, in, a, in a hiring environment like that. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and I didn't really, I was just being honest. I, I don't mm. think, it wasn't like, I wanted the job really bad. I needed the job. Mm. Everyone needed the job. But I, I think he asked in a, in a way that I think inspired me to, to answer very honestly. And that was the honest answer. Mm. Uh, I didn't see myself working for somebody forever. Mm. Um, but I need the experience. So experience came knocking. Uh, you know, someone I interned with at Design Works at BMW had gone to an aviation startup, uh, Icon Aircraft, and he was looking for a designer. And so he kind of reached out to me just to ask for referrals, right? Do you know anybody? And I kind of made a, a choice. I, the company interested me. Uh, the product was really interesting. So this is in, this is what, 2015? 2011. Oh, okay. 2011. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so 2011. So I, I only I only worked for Honda for a couple of years. Yes. And took a leap and joined Klaus. Uh, that, that's his name, uh, Klaus Trichler. He, he's at Icon, he, right? The aircraft. He's company. at Icon yeah. Aircraft. Yeah, yeah. That was an amazing aircraft oh that oh thank you yeah that's that's, that's a, it's okay i saw the aircraft for the oh for folks who don't know so so like i mean can i may i yeah, yes please i'll tell you i'll tell you what i know which is the it's the ultralight it's the like one of it's under the new ultralight category for for, mm-hmm. for aircraft or sport aircraft but mm-hmm. it's it has like one of the lowest stalling speeds of all, all aircraft and it makes it super easy to see super easy to fly and you can like you know, it's amphibious. Super safe. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, that's, I mean, I know it's a story. I know there's a big story around that and like the company and how. Yeah, I think it's the first uh, general aviation aircraft that's widely available that, that has full spall, uh, stall and full spin resistance. Yes. Yeah. Which is a program that took a lot of dedication, a lot of time. I, I think we built about uh, six to eight different wings before we got that right. Wow. And um, it's a big safety thing, right? It's a... If you if you can manage to do that, uh, it takes a lot of the, the the danger away from flying a small aircraft, totally. especially for inexperienced pilots. Totally, yeah. So from the get go, you know, every kid loves airplanes. Yeah, 
who doesn't love airplanes totally. and, and an airplane that looks like a sports car and lands on the water super fun it looks power sports he got me in just to talk we, we were just going to meet up for lunch and i saw the aircraft and you know i, I told him well, i want to work here this, this is amazing mm. like you know would, would, would that be a possibility and i think two weeks into the conversation i, I gave my notice to to honda and and took the leap to to go and do airplanes in hindsight this it, that was a really big decision in terms of the overall path on, on how I got here because it took so much effort and time to get to Honda. Mm. Like that was my dream job. Like everyone goes to school to get this job. Yep. This is what you want. Yep. Especially during that time it's like a dream job is in California. And what were you doing what were you doing at Honda when you were for the couple of years that you were there? Yeah, so I was an exterior designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first project there was actually a an electric vehicle, a battery electric vehicle. I remember I think they had an emergency meeting where they all got together and said well, I think we need to do a BEV, a battery electric vehicle. And this was back, you know, back when, when that wasn't really a huge deal yet. Mm-hmm. Now everyone's kind of getting into it, but Tesla was really the only one and they were being mocked left and right, right? And and so I think Honda had the foresight for sure. They knew that this was coming, but due to the the size of the company and, and the, the amount of decision-making that, that goes into something like that, the project ended up, you know, stopping or, or, or getting stopped. And I think, in my mind, that was kind of a turning point for me when, when that project got canceled. Uh, even though it was just the first project, I, I realized if I'm working for somebody, a big company like that, where there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's there's many decision makers above what really I love to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that means progress will be stalled. Yep. And that's just the nature of it. Totally. We see it all the time. Like when projects go on for four years, goes goes nowhere. Yep. So that, that kind of cemented my decision to to take a leap I and mean, this is a new startup I, I eventually want to do a startup so gotta learn gotta go out and, and see what i can get out of this icon at that point i think had eight employees uh, I, I think i was the ninth employee no uh, very wow yeah very young company nobody was there i mean we i think we had a show model and that's about it there's no production design there's nothing there. everything was very new yeah wow. they had just uh, started raising their their b round i believe when I when I joined, so pretty early on, you know, I um, it was just me and Klaus in design. There's we didn't have a team yet. We were building our own space in the attic of the the Icon building and just we're starting to bring design in house. Before then, they were kind of out, uh, outsourcing the design. So needless to say, you know, I think I, I spent about eight years at Icon, about five or six of it full time, and then contracting afterwards. Probably learned more about companies and and how they're ran and and what to do, what what maybe not to do, and, and figure out from the design process all the way through putting it into production, mm-hmm. right, from the from a ramp up. I think by the time I left Icon, we were at around 600 employees. I think it grew to like 1,000 at some point, and then they contract a little bit. So yeah, yeah. kind of saw all the uh, the pains of, of uh, the growing pains of a startup, of a small company, mm. and, and solving a very difficult problem, right, because an, an airplane is very difficult. You know, it makes what we're doing seem very, very easy comparatively, simply because there's the there's a big, big implication of what happens when an airplane doesn't work. You can't you can't really pull over. Right. So I think having the hard problem and then compounding the hard problem by adding really unique features like spin resistance, Mm -hmm. like being able to fly really easily, having the angle attack angle on a general aviation aircraft was it kind of compounded the problem. Uh, And so. Problem solving ended up being a, a big part of what I learned, right? And, and and how to be very adaptable to different situations. Leaving the auto industry was scary mm. because you know I, I knew that once you leave that industry, it's kind of that's it, right? You you kind of go into a different industry, and and I think I I was more okay with that. And in hindsight, it ended up being a, a really good decision, uh, given where the industry has gone, mm. right? Uh, I've since then worked in a different EV tall startups where that that whole industry is completely you know, blowing up for, for good or for for bad, yeah. a lot of money getting dumped into there. So I, there is a lot of money being, <laughs> I, I still can't get over how much money there is in the eVTOL space for, for something and, that's yeah. like, you know, the, you that, know, that like micro mobility companies, which have something that like you can I, sell tomorrow is like, I know, I know yeah. it's, um, I, I tell you, Oliver, I mean, it, it's one of the biggest thing that I think, I mean, I think anyone who works in the eVTOL industry realizes the challenges of getting something like this to market. Mm. But I think for VCs or for investors, right, uh, especially the venture capitalists, their thing is 
they get, you know, they fail 90% of the time. And, and that one 10% of the time that they hit, they hit really big. Mm. And I think that's, that's the mindset is we just need one of these companies to really make it and be the next Tesla, right? Be the next thousand X. And then that's, that's kind of what I think that might be the, the mindset, but I don't know if there's enough critical thinking around how difficult it is to get something to this, to, to the market in this space totally from a rec- regulatory standpoint yeah i'm quite good friends with the uh, the woman who used to run whisk which was the kitty hawk subsidiary oh, yeah. and that was yep. doing all the testing in new zealand mm-hmm. and and she's yeah yeah, yeah. no I, going any uh, further into that but no. she's just like yeah it is very it's way harder than you think yeah it's not a car right and and like the the regulatory approval yeah the regulatory approval process is just going to be excruciating for for a whole bunch of companies it's excruciating and and there's so many hurdles that you know, we, we say it like, oh, it's a Jetson, it's the flying car. It's really not. It, it's, it's an airplane. Yep. Right? It, ha- it has to, you're pushing the same amount of weight to get yourself up that high. It's really in no, by no means a car. Yep. And so, yeah, I, I think seeing the, the difficulty of that really kind of challenged me, especially from a, a manufacturing standpoint. And this is kind of where I'll get into why Rivet is the way it is. It's Seeing the challenges of manufacturing and the ability for, for let's say, a Honda to to ramp up production with massive infrastructure and, mm-hmm. and a lot of manpower, right? They have a ton of resources. And for them, it's difficult, right? For them to get to where they are now, it's extremely difficult. And so for a startup, it's exponentially difficult yeah. because you're running up against resource issues. You're running up against manpower, shortage, material supply. And so... Through that, through that experience, after Icon, I went and started my own design consultancy where we got we learned a ton just doing work for other clients. Mm. The best learning experience you ever have is just to do your own consultancy. Yeah, get with as many companies as you can and learn as much as you can, right? Because you're getting paid to learn. Uh, yes. Really, it, it, they're paying you to to come up with something, but in the process, you get to learn. And so we we worked on motorcycles, we worked on off road vehicles, UTVs, boats, aircraft. All sorts of different product, vacuum cleaners, really across the board. Mm-hmm. Kind of got to see how people manage to scale. Yep. Because most of the companies that hire us are in the, the startup phase. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they need to design something that they can scale and, and go out and get investment for. And so big learning experience, about four years doing that. And, and during that time is when Rivet kind of got its start. I, I always knew that this would be something I'm, I'm interested in doing. Whether it's electric or not, you know, that wasn't very clear at the beginning. And did you specifically mean that you were, when you're saying this is something you do, like you knew it would be a, a vehicle company of some regard? Some regards. It, it's it's a, a way to move people around, uh, yeah. whether it's on-road vehicle or land, air, water. It wasn't very clear. It was mm-hmm. it was something that moved people around. Yep, I hear you. Right? But but not not in the, the traditional sense where it's strictly just mobility. It's, it has to be fun mobility, right? So we, we call ourselves a, a mobile sport company yep. a, instead of a power sports company. Because for us, mobility is very important. Uh, but to get people to really get into mobility, it has to be somewhat exciting, right? It's, I think across the board, when, when you use something, when you use a product, there's an emotional connection. Yeah. For, for any successful product, there's always an emotional attachment or, or connection to your product. That's really the only way to get the mass to, to really engage and, and get excited about a product. So you know, mobile sport is a way for to get people around, but doing it in a way where it gets people excited. You, mm. you, we want to see this thing in your garage and you, you want to ride it all the time, right? So I knew that that's the space I wanted to get into. Electric wasn't really on top of mind initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that came through after working with, uh, you know, clients like Zero Motorcycles. And there's a few other electric uh, companies that we work with that really help me kind of see the simplicity of the drivetrain yep. really is, is the simplicity of execution across the board on all these products right and uh, i'm a big gearhead so i i love engines like i my, i have an mr2 in the back there where i took the entire thing apart down to every single bolt and not and redid it right because it's, it's beautiful i mean how can someone spend that much time designing something that precise mm, mm. that watches like all these things that that move in in, in unison to me is beautiful but you know, in, in a way, I, I looked at it as a as art rather than really the most efficient way to do something. Yes, because it it really isn't. I mean, uh, a combustion engine has thousands of parts, and it's really doing the same thing less efficiently than than electric motor. Mm-hmm. Right. In many ways, it's, it's there's friction, there's heat, there's parts scraping up against each other. There's so many things happening just to get something to turn and move. Yes, that didn't make any sense. 
Right, so seeing the, the the fact that you can hook up a few wires, program a controller on a zero motorcycle, and go out and and do insane. I mean, those zero motorcycles are are incredible. I mean, the, the amount of power that you get out of those drivetrain is it blows me away. Right, so that kind of opened up my mind. I'm an avid motorcycle rider since I was young. Uh, mm. in, in Vietnam, I rode mopeds. Moved here, I rode built mopeds and ride those. Got up to motorcycles, small, large. So going to an electric motorcycle was a another you know a conversion in in my mind that i really had to think about i was really against it actually i was thinking why would you want to ride a motorcycle if it didn't make cool sound and you can't shift and do all these things that, that are fun yes uh, and then i got on one and and it was an immediate clarity it was like oh okay that's why yeah like there's all the talk from right at the bottom of the talk yes. yeah it's like there, there is something pretty compelling about them you know i don't i don't ride them myself but i but i but i've ridden oh. them and it's it's really quite something you know it's it's the torque but but even more so the biggest thing i realized was the amount of awareness to your surroundings that you get from riding a motorcycle yeah right because so at icon i i was one of the first two to get trained in the a5 so they they had a training program where they take non-pilots and i was a non-pilot mm. and they'll train you how to fly and my first experience flying the a5 was essentially complete freedom right it's like mm. you can really it, it's amazing and there's there's really very little boundaries uh when, when you're up that high and there's the noise is is a beautiful feeling and, and riding a motorcycle to me has a very similar feeling there's really nothing in between you and the road. There's you're sitting on something and you're moving very fast. Yeah. Now you take the engine away, you take the vibration away, you take all the noise away, and that's a whole different experience. And and that actually got to me more than more so than the torque, right? Because the regular motorcycle is very fast, but the lack of noise and just the way that is so efficient and, and efficient in the way it moves. Not not even I'm not even talking about gas mileage or anything like that. It's just mm. you twist and it goes and it's there's nothing in between. There is a very seamless feeling, very much like flying, right? So that pretty much got me hooked. And I realized if everyone got to experience this, it'd be a no-brainer. I mean, mm. it's not a comparable experience. It's just a different experience. And I think the mistake people make is trying to compare a gas bike with a, an electric bike. It's, it's no comparison. Yep. It's just a different experience. So so that, that really cemented, okay, we're going to do electric power sports. Because, I mean, look, look we looked around wasn't many companies doing electric power sports mm. right so so first you have to kind of identify the missing piece of the market like why are people not doing this right so what what year was this this was back in 2016 yeah wow okay so pretty much right after yeah it's 2016 nobody was really doing this right i think zero was really was the only one in town that there's a few startups that were doing motorcycles that, that were electric that, mm. that we saw but no one was seriously taking just electric power sports like ATVs, UTVs, yep. boats. Right? People were starting to get into it, but not not. There's no big players, and arguably there still isn't. Yes, surprisingly, right? There's there's, yeah, there's still mean, a very slow process. Totally, and it, and in yeah. certain places, like I, I'm in New Zealand, and I, there is one person who I know. I think there's like one or two live wires in the country, and there's maybe mm-hmm. like one other zero. I mean, there, there are next to no vehicles. There's a couple of electric mopeds because you can get them from China relatively cheaply. But like, right, right, right. Probably, I know that like the electric two wheeler spaces. It's super popular in Asia, but it hasn't really taken off in the US. And no, no, and it's the same with power sports uh, as a whole. Right? I mean, ATVs, UTVs, they're mostly gas. I mean, mm. dirt bikes, all, all those things are. And an electric makes a lot of sense for off road. That's what we realized. I mean, as we we, we built a few prototypes uh, when I had uh, the design consultancy, where you know we were already thinking about okay, how do we do something like this that that's electric and and, and go out and experience it. So we made some prototypes. And, and realize pretty quickly that the perfect use case really for electric is leisure. It's, it's going out off-roading, right? But mm-hmm. Because what electric's really good at is, is simplicity, it's uh, instant power, right? And uh, it's the lack of noise and, and just overall efficiency of enjoying nature, right? If, if you're out in nature, if you're out in the woods, do you really want to hear that? You know, it sounds like a lawnmower. There's no, it's not a, a beautiful sound. It's not like a race car where you, it sounds really cool. It's just a drone. It's just like a... Very similar to an aircraft, actually. It's like one one droning sound. And when you take that away, your experience of being outdoors is completely enhanced, like even more th- more so than just a, a daily commute. Their lack of range anxiety, because if you're out having fun, most of the time you're trailering these things to places that you want to have fun at. Yes. Right? And, and yeah. you're not having to drive there. So then that made the case for electric. Electric on-road is very different. Uh, I think a lot of companies out there are, are chasing this very high-performance market 
for two wheels, right? Uh, high performance, a ton of range, as much as they can pack on the batteries. But for us, we took a very different look at that because weight is a, a very critical component of any motorcycle. Mm-hmm. The more weight you put on, the less friendly it is really because now there's a lot more bike to handle. And, and so going into it, beyond just the efficiency uh, of manufacturing and the way that the bike is made, we kind of looked at the market very carefully and we said, you know, the technology for batteries and for electric drivetrain, I think makes the most sense for city commutes. That's that's why most electric two-wheelers are scooters yes. and motorized bicycles, right? Because they make the most sense. It's hard to compete with the big leader bikes or mm. that are way cheaper and has way more power and better performance overall, right? Because just because... Uh, it's optimized for that yeah totally and and adding batteries for range doesn't necessarily get you as much range as you think because you're adding weight right so it, it, there's a diminishing returns in how much battery you can really add not like a car yes a car a car you can stuff a lot of batteries in and it's still pretty aerodynamic so an urban commuter was really the only way we're going to do a two-wheeler mm-hmm. and and it's really to fill in the space between the motorized bicycles with the Suron, the Super 73s, all these, uh, the Sondors of the world. Yeah. With, uh, in between that and the Zeros and the live wires. Yes. So that led you to the Anthem, right? And like that's... That, that, that led us to the Anthem. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and when we started the company, Rivet was never meant to be a motorcycle company. Uh, actually, our first product that we were going to launch is actually a, a platform for a, a four-wheel vehicle for a UTV, ATV type. Oh, no way. Yeah, so interesting. we, we actually pivoted mainly because of, of what we saw in the market. There was a, a lack of, this market had had a space right right in between those those two products I mentioned, where I think we can get our brand out and, and get the product to market as soon as we can, right? Because... With any startup, time is the enemy. Totally. We take two years, we're going to die before we get anything to, to the market. So for us, survival was very critical. So we made a, a very clear decision to launch something that's much quicker to get to market. And, and so the, the Anthem was was that answer. Uh, we're still in development with all of these other vehicles, right? And and eventually they, they will get launched. But uh, hopefully that will cement this as really a, a mobile sport company rather than just a motorcycle company. Yeah, which is, is something we're we're trying to get away from. So so take me through the the anthem because I I think the there's a couple of things about it that are quite interesting as a vehicle. Yeah, for sure. So like ballpark, where are we? You know, what's the sort of what's the cost? What's the range? What's the what are the kind of key? Yeah, so specs uh, that are interesting. The the anthem is a, a seventy eight hundred dollar motorcycle. It's a, a really a, an urban commuter. It's highway capable. The production anthem will actually be able to go. Quite a bit more than, than the advertised max speed. I think we advertised 75 plus, uh, but you know that that plus left it open for us to to really play with the the, the settings. So we've gotten it up to about 85, 90 miles an hour on the freeway. So that's that's a possibility. Uh, of course, range goes down as that goes up, yep. right? So yep. naturally. So you know, in in terms of range, the real usable range for the Anthem is really around 50 miles. 75. If you're really careful, if you're you know if you're going 25, 35 miles an hour, then you'll get about 75, but nobody rides like that, right? So, uh, you know, on our, even on our website, we're, we're very clear in the FAQ that if you're riding how you normally ride when, you, when you're having fun, you get maybe 50 miles out of it uh, on the range. So it's a very specific use case for the Anthem. If you have a, a commute every day to, to get to and from work or if you're traveling in the city, that's what the Anthem is for. Yep. Accessibility is a, a, a huge thing for us. Being a motorcycle rider, seat height was always an issue for me. You know, I, my inseam is about 30, 31 inches, and a lot of bikes that I like are much bigger than that. Yep. So I had to be pretty experienced before I was able to experience cool bikes that I like. And, and that's the one pain point that we wanted to kind of take away from the product and, and allow more people to ride. That's the whole point, right? And so the seat height being adjustable was a key feature that we wanted to put into the bike. Now, you know, that's enabled by the drivetrain. It, it really is. Um, I think a lot of the, the seat height is dictated by where the engine sits, right? It's, totally, it's, totally. Because you know where to go. Yeah, Mika, Mika Toll uh, did the review of your bike and just, you know, that was the part that he, he was really on about. He, he was like, this is, you know, nobody else has an adjustable seat that's like this. You know? And you also don't realize how, how useful it is until you have it, right? It's like one of those things that's like, you might want to adjust it once, and leave it there. That's what most people do. But mm. actually, I find myself adjusting it constantly on the fly. As mm. I'm coming to a stop, I want the seat to be lower. Mm. And then when I'm riding, I actually want to be higher because I can see over traffic. I can, I can maneuver better. And so, 
you know, having it being adjustable on the fly was was a, a good key decision to making it a lot more accessible. So the Anthem is built around accessibility. We want people to ride. And, and the connotation for motorcycle is that it's dangerous, hard to do. You're going to get in and probably kill yourself, right? And that's, that's what a lot of people think when they think of a motorcycle. We really want people to think of this as a motorized bicycle. I think that if, if you can bring the level down where people realize, okay, you get on this thing and it's really no different than that big Super 73 electric bicycle. Mm-hmm. Because those things look are starting to look more and more like motorcycles, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're getting big. I mean, they, they got gas tanks. They got all sorts of things. Totally. So, well, they're all, yeah. everything is adapting, right? And it's that, yep. uh, you know, I talk about the Cambrian explosion of different vehicles. <laughs> bits. It's like these things with with electric you can kind of make anything work and yes. and then it's the question of like okay well what does it look like from a regulatory perspective i think that's a secondary exactly. thing but 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 the, but the possibility like the the design space is just so open it's amazing yeah I mean, it leaves everything open and it, that's the only way we can do this this seat right because there's nothing underneath i mean there's a frame and airspace yes so we can move the seat up and down well the thing that really struck me about your design is that you've gone and you've put the battery right down the bottom like yeah, super super low to the ground. There's a, a few reasons for that. Uh, the most important is the user. Mm. Right, we wanted this battery to be hot swappable, so no tools needed. You only need a key to really release the battery and, and take it off and be able to switch it if you really wanted to. Because a, a lot of these, uh, the urban environment, right? You you might not have a dedicated parking spot in a garage mm-hmm. or a heated garage, right? And so there are times when you will need to bring the battery inside or, or do whatever you need to do with it. You know, having it modular and removable not only serves the customer, it also serves us as a, a company, right? Mm. Because it allows us to be very flexible with what kind of battery technology is coming out and different battery sizes that we, we're going to offer. So that it being that low, that's the main priority. The second priority was, was really the handling of the bike. What we didn't want was a, a compromised electric motorcycle. Over, oversized, overweight, crappy handling, mm. bad suspension, right? So... Uh, hub motors, not great for, for handling. Yep. Tall, uh, high center gravity, not great for handling, especially if it's really heavy. So the battery sitting on the bottom and being a little bit further forward was very intentional. Right? We're, getting, we're getting some comments where, oh, that looks like a belly. And the reason for it hanging out is, is actually for, for CG. Right? A lot of bikes, they kind of figure out the CG where it needs to be without the rider. Mm-hmm. And then you put the rider on, which is... 50% of the weight, right? The rider is so heavy on, on a motorcycle. So your CG gets kind of messed up. So we, we designed the, the CG so that with the rider is very close to 50-50. I think it's like 48 to 52 or something like that. Wow. Right. So by the way, I just want to stress, I don't know anything about motorbikes. So, okay. <laughs> so no, no, that's what you're telling me, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I know, I know from cars, 50-50 is great, but, but, um, so, I'll explain why. Uh, it's a it's a very simple explanation, right? So the wheelbase on a bike, uh, the, the wheelbase, the, the, the longer the wheelbase, the more stable the bike. Yes. Shorter the wheelbase, the more squirrely it is. Now, the problem is in the city, you want a short wheelbase because it's more maneuverable. Totally. But on the freeway, you want it long, right? And, and weight distribution affects this. Where the weight is affects your how squirrely it is on the freeway mm-hmm. if you have a short wheelbase. Mm-hmm. Because we want a short wheelbase, I mean... We are optimizing this for urban environments, but the fact that we're allowing people to get on the freeway and go 80 miles an hour, it has to be safe. Yes. Right. So the only way to play with that is weight distribution. Yeah. Because we, we made the trail a little bit longer than, than a typical urban motorcycle so that it's better on the freeway. But to counteract that, we made the weight distribution very good for city riding. Mm-hmm. So when you get on this bike, you can whip it around very, very easily, all the way low slung to the bottom and right in the center. So it's, it's right where you want it to be. And so when you get on the Anthem, it's, it's good in the city, but it's also very good on the freeway. And 80 miles an hour on this bike on the freeway, I can do regularly. It, it does not feel like a small bike, mm-hmm. right? which is the, the last thing you want to feel. So weight distribution is very important and, and only on a vehicle like this that you can move the weight around because this battery is, is movable. Right? It's, it's, a, it's an individual unit. It's not stuck to the frame. It's not designed into the frame for that reason. In terms of design iteration, is a big advantage, right? Yeah. Everything on the bike is, is designed to be very modular. Our entire front end, we have this uh, this triple tree unit, which is essentially where the front suspension and wheels and everything mounts onto the frame. 
is not welded to the frame. It's actually mechanically fastened. Hmm. And w- what this allows us to do is actually design different types of front ends very quickly and iterate until we get what we want or, or until we have to come up with a new product on, on the same platform, right? So that the Anthem is a platform. Totally. One of the things that I actually, let's go there now, because one of the things that I noted about your your design is that you've gone for a, like a folded metal frame. Mm-hmm. And, you know, traditionally, my understanding of motorbikes is that they built, they're built in relative, like most of them are built on tubular chassis um, that yep. are all welded together. And you've obviously gone for a kind of riveted and, and folded metal frame. Now, I have interviewed the the folks from Stillride. I'm sure you've probably seen them out in, uh-huh. out in Sweden. And, and, you know, when David and I were talking about wheel, it, I, I just think there's an interesting development of like a whole bunch of companies that are now starting to try and do folded metal as a, as a yeah. frame design. but. This is the first one that I've seen, like a first first folded metal uh, frame design for bikes. Is it is it common? Like, is it are you am I am I just naive or or are you pretty new in this? No, no, yeah, it's actually not common at all. And uh, there's there's been some uh, attempts, but it, it's not really the same way because a lot of them are still welded. Right. Okay. Right. They're folded and then they're welded together. So uh, the inspiration for for this this was very uh, unique. So you know, aircraft. Uh, carbon fiber aircrafts are actually all bonded together. Yes. There's, there's no, you don't, you don't need to uh, weld anything. They're, they're all bonded with, with this very strong adhesive. But you know, to, to bond it together, you have to hold it together with a, a big fixture and clamp everything down for a long time mm-hmm. until it's ready and cured. So I saw an opportunity there. I had a, another company too that I started before this, uh, this one, and th- that company did folded uh, paper cars. A folded paper car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh no way! Okay, so yeah. so so for folks who are not uh, who can't see this because uh, this is on audio, yeah. obviously, uh, Trunks holding up a, a like a geodesic design of a Porsche nine eleven. Yes. Yeah, Carrera, for, like with the with the uh, the the old beautiful. Um, yes, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, excellent. The company is called called Gami, right? And and it's a it's a kit that you buy. It comes in flat sheets. Basically, it comes in a little envelope, uh, and, and you you. There's instructions on how to fold it and, and how to glue it all together. It's actually, it has like peel and stick, so you don't actually need to use glue. Yep. Very quickly, you can put a very 3D form together. Yeah, yeah. This is amazing. Right. We, 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 realized, we realized very quickly, holy, I mean, this is all flat shapes and straight lines, but I mean, look at the amount of curvature you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. And so the, the thought really stemmed from that and, and the, air, the way that aircrafts go together. I'm, I'm thinking, well, if we can make something pretty structural... Because if this was not paper, it'd be very structural. Yes. Right. Uh, why not do it for a motorcycle frame? Because I can make these models and iterate on them so quick. I mean, at some point we were making a couple models a day. Wow. Like we, we were just playing with it and printing it out, cutting it, and it's very simple. Flat sheets of paper, widely available. Flat sheet metal, widely available. Mm-hmm. Right. You can buy flat stock anywhere. They they make them for everything. Yeah. So. That's really where it stemmed from. It, it was it was more of a necessity in, in manufacturing that kind of led us down the path of, okay, we don't really want to spend 30 hours putting a frame together. That's how long they, you know, they take a long time. I mean, you, you have very complicated uh, fixtures. You need very skilled labor. Mm-hmm. Not every welder is made equally. That's why they all use robots in, in car companies. And, and so we wanted to rule a lot of that out because we, we knew that the only way we we're going to get to production and have a product in the market is to get there quick and not spend all of our funding right we have very limited funding yeah and so that's that's kind of the thought behind that and and beyond that you know some motorcycle frames the really exotic ones are actually monocoque frames so they're they're fully one piece casting of a very uh, hollow frames that are very strong we can kind of replicate that with the same design like it, it's a box design right so our, our actually our frame is very strong stronger than, than a lot of the tube frames because it's a box structure yes it's essentially a, a very big box, and so we ran we ran a bunch of analysis on on FEA, put it through much higher uh, loads than we would typically do for a motorcycle, right? And that kind of confirmed, okay, this is doable. Uh, we found the right adhesive, actually the same stuff that we use on the Icon A5. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called high saw. It's super strong. Once you put it together, you might as well. I mean, it might as well be welded together, right? Yep. So I think a lot of people think that our frames riveted together, but the rivets. Is not actually what's holding together the frame. The, the bonding is what's holding it together. What the rivet allows us to do is it holds the frame together while the bonding is curing. Yeah, fascinating. Right, because 
because it goes back to not having complicated tooling fixtures I need to be able to do this in my garage and that's how it can scale right if, if we need to go out and get big factories and permits there's no way we can make it in California competitively or really anywhere for that matter, right? It's, it's a lot of labor. Well, it's, it's also, you know, part of the reason that I'm excited for Still Ride and and and, uh, and for you guys as well is just that the, you know, I think that it, it conforms to our thesis originally that like, you know, Horace has always been on around this idea that manufacturing, like the, the manufacturing technique that you pick for, for, for everything kind of dictates a whole bunch about your vehicle and the, and the capital structures that you need to raise. Yes. And, and, and like, that was why he was like, cars are not going to change because we still make cars the same way. And your factory yep. costs you $5 billion to build or a couple of billion dollars to build. And so you have to amortize the entire vehicle over the cost of the factory. And exactly. And a lot of them are losing money, right? I mean, they're, they're making money, these cars. I mean, Rivian, great company, right? Uh, Lucid all their cars cost way more than they can sell it for. So yes. they're, they're depending on getting to scale, but getting to scale in the right amount of time so that they don't run out of money. Yes. So that's every car startup, right? So. Totally, totally. And and then that's the opportunity that I think exists for micro is that, you know, like yes. for this, it's the, you know, the, the, the requirements for things like crash testing and, and, and like what you'd need to prove. Mm-hmm to a regulator is a lot lower than you would be for a standard car company, which is why it's, yep. there's, I think, more innovation happening in this space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so like, can you talk me through the, so, so you've obviously got this frame design that you've, you've gone and done. Does that, what, what does that do to your, uh, you know, to, to the requirements for capital requirements for being able to get to production versus, for example, if you were to go like another standard motor, motorcycle manufacturer, who's trying to do an electric motorbike? Yeah. So this is, a great, a great, great question. So, in terms of capital, we we bootstrapped me and and uh, the two two of the founders. We we essentially bootstrapped the entire company up until it was ready for a, a pre production prototype, mm-hmm. meaning very low capital. I think you know, we spent all together a few hundred thousand dollars uh, be, between all of us. Up up to now, we've only raised a, a friends and family round. It's a very low capital requirement. Uh, it's it's about a million dollars. We've raised and, and gotten to this point. All of our, our tooling uh, is in place. The, the actual frame requires no tooling. It's, mm. it's just bent sheet metal. So it's a laser cut pattern that we design and it's bent and with, with holes and all the placement drilled into it, uh, all the tabs. So in terms of the frame and our ability to get to production, it's much quicker yep. than, than normal. Right? Because I think a lot of people, when, when we announced the production prototype and we said we we're going to start selling them in, by summer, I think the natural thing to do is think, uh, that's never going to happen, right? This is a prototype, but those prototypes be- behind me are, are actually, I mean, they have about uh, four or 5,000 miles on them together already, right? Mm-hmm. Just from the time we launched them now, which is about four months. So they're the production representative bikes. Yes. There's not much more beyond that. Really, this, there's now procurement on how many firms you got to buy, but our price break on these frames is about 50 units. No way. Yes, which is unheard of, right? I mean, you it's normally thousands. Yeah, totally. When when you start, at least when you really optimize the the cost, and so our bomb from the get go, our cogs makes us money from from the beginning. Yep. So us selling it at seven eight hundred dollars is not us trying to get the price as low as we can so we can scale. It's a viable price mm-hmm. for us. If we can just keep selling at that, we'll we'll be okay for the, for the U.S. market. Yep. You know, as you get into other markets, the price uh, differential gets higher uh, but at that point you can you can scale some of the parts uh, beyond the frame to to get the cost down like uh, you know battery and, and motor sizing sure and so the way that the anthem is designed is is so that we as a company can survive even at low volume mm-hmm. right having the ability to scale up and scale down is really critical for us and I think it it should be for any startup capital will always be a problem especially where we are now in this environment right it, capital is going to be very difficult <laughs> what are you a pre-revenue hardware startup or something <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a oh, brutal man. joke but it's it's so it was a lot easier yeah. i mean it was a lot easier about a year ago totally um, totally it didn't take long to change right so and that's going to happen and so staying lean is, is a big deal for us and and that goes for the capital expenditure to create a factory let's, let's say you go out and you buy a, a big building and, and you put it together to make bikes that's a lot of money yeah that's you know so, in the hundreds of millions yeah. so so you guys went live on the on the orders how uh, how many how what's your pre-order count look like are you able to reveal that yeah so uh, we we've had pretty good traction 
mm-hmm. we're we're in the hundreds yep. of of uh, full price pre-orders. Yep. Uh, surprisingly, we have actually gotten more of the full price pre-orders than the deposits. Oh no way! Like people are actually saying, "I'm yeah." Like, like here's my money. People rather pay. Yeah, I think because uh, there's a time difference, right? There, if you pay upfront, then you get it. You're the, basically the first to get it in come summer. Yeah. If you don't, then you just have to wait till next summer to ride, essentially, because it, it comes sometime in the winter of, of 23. Yes. So I think for, for a lot of people, a lot of our, our customers uh, who we're targeting, they want to they wanna get on this thing right away and, and ride it, right? So we've been getting a lot more. I mean, we've only gotten in the single digits on, on the $500 pre-orders. Yeah, Most wow. of them are, <laughs> are full price. Yeah, wow. Uh, so there's some traction. Uh, you know, we, we're a brand new company. Uh, no one's really heard of us before, yeah. so there's there's a lot a lot of uphill battle to go there, and 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 brand is really important to us more so than the IP or the product. It it's really about how people see you as a brand, right? And and how successful you're able to sell your product and what that product stands for. And and so we haven't spent a lot of money on marketing. We haven't really gone out and and ran a bunch of ads to really where it would start making a huge difference in terms of getting. The masses to to come in and adopt right and and the reason for that is we are a very limited resource getting to production is our number one goal right for for anyone who for one person who put down seventy eight hundred dollars mm-hmm. we have we have to get to production totally like even if it's just one guy right and so we're fully focused on that right now uh i think some of our marketing effort will we'll get we'll kind of get accelerated a little bit you know and, and that's why I, I i love doing podcasts like these because it kind of gets the word out without a lot of capital in, in, in how we, where we're spending our energy. and Totally. Well, there are a couple of people who have told me when I was talking to them about, you know, like who are the most interesting companies in the, in the sort of electric motorbike space. And a couple of people have come back and said, Rivet. Oh, that's awesome. Because you, one, because of the frame design and two, just because they're like, they're adamant you're going to ship. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no peer pressure or anything, but uh, no, for sure. I mean, yeah. we, we say summer, but you know, we're, we're aiming to try and beat everything that, yeah, you know, summer is really the the worst case scenario for us to to get to get product to to the hands of consumers. Yeah. Well, so you've only raised a mill to today, but then you know the thing that kind of blew me away was the news recently uh, about the the state of California grant. So can you just talk through what that program was, why it existed, and yeah. what that's going to enable for you? Yeah. So you know when when we started the team, uh, there was very there's tactical decision and uh, there's strategic decision. This this was one of the tactical ones, right? It's um, uh, one of the the guys we, we got on board uh, as a, a founder as well. He he was a nuclear sub captain, so as you do, he had a lot of experience. You know, he he knew how to how to run a ship, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally, and, and and he knew tactical decisions to make and then what what, what to do at, at certain times. And so very early on, we, we realized there's a wave coming, right? Uh, politically, there's there's an EV wave coming, and it's not it might not last too long, right? It depends on what what comes next, but how do we get into that and optimize it. So we spent a lot of time strategizing on these grants, mm-hmm. right? California has a lot of money and then there's a lot of grants being given around to companies. And so we spent about three months kind of writing up the plan for, for this program called Cal Competes. Uh, they run it, I think, once once a year. Essentially, it's, it's California's way to keep companies in California. It's like a mass exodus of uh, companies leaving California for, for various mm-hmm. reasons. Uh, and so they create this this program where you apply and you can ask for certain amounts with the the thought that you're going to stay in california and, and grow manufacturing here in california and the aim uh, the aim specifically is around the manufacturing side of it right yeah because they they have enough skilled labor here they have enough talent enough uh salaried people right they're, they're really looking for the the entry level the assembly workers the, the manufacturing folks to to stick around in california yeah because that is the, the majority of the people here, right? And, and and so how do you grow that in a way that benefits both the state as well as the overall movement of, of this wave of EV adoption? You know, for, for most companies, it doesn't make sense because you can't really pay the amount of salary that would be required in California to, to do what we're doing because there's so much more, there's so much other things that you have to pay for in terms of resource that you have to allocate to. Uh, and so for, for us, the way that this anthem, this this product or whatever product we're going to be building is put together simplifies our workforce, mm-hmm. meaning there's a lot of people we can tap into right. that has has the skill we need because there's not, not a ton of skill. 
you really need to know how to work a, a rivet gun, right? <laughs> which it's not that difficult, right? Because you can, and, and that specifically comes back to the way that you did the frame design with the folded yes. metal and all that sort of stuff, because you can yeah. automate all of that. Can you automate the folding as well? Yeah, so the, uh, the folding is actually completely automated. It's all CNC folding. Uh, yep. and, and so they, they first they laser cut, but that's automated. And then yep. it goes into a machine where they, we design it in a way where you don't need any special dies or tooling. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's, that's the difference between what we're doing and maybe some other people are doing because folding sheet metal sounds simple, but it can get very complex if you don't do it right. Yes. Like you can, you can design something very beautiful like this Porsche, right? Yeah. To do, to do this, the way we're doing the frame would never work because this requires your hands. So the challenge is how do you do it? A very simple frame that still looks good. Mm-hmm. That's really the challenge because simple doesn't always translate to, to sexy, right? It's, our frame is very simple. It's just a, an L bracket like that. Yeah, it's just two two bends. But we did it in a way where it's, some of it is exposed, some of it is very mechanical, and and there are components that covers it up so that it you know it still looks like a motorcycle. And and so going back to to tactical decision making, that that was really our decision to to know that we're going to want to stay here in California, to know that we might have to get some grants to enable us to grow uh, correctly, led to the entire design of the product and really what the company is all about. And mm. in the end, you know, simplicity is simplicity. If you can do something very simply, why not, why not do it? Right. And totally. why make it more complicated? Totally. And so that because it was it because of the manufacturer, because you were able to, uh, with your manufacturing, make sure that it's not super skilled or mm-hmm. you won't require as many skills to be able to manufacture as for example, other, other, other groups that that was the reason that they uh, chose you because it was it was it was sizable like it's a 20 million dollar grant so it's sizable we we actually yeah i mean that's that's like i think the largest grant i've ever seen in the micromobility space is part again part of the reason i wanted to talk to you it, it is actually it's it's it was one of the largest grants they actually gave to anybody wow. uh micromobility or not right and and i mean if you saw the list of all the other companies, they were you know, multi-billion dollar companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got like Lamb Research. I think Rivian was part of it until the last minute. So there, there are some really big companies. And and I think what it shows is it's not really even about Rivian. I, I think it's about micromobility as a whole. Mm-hmm. right? Because when these grants go out, I think there's a reason why they're given to certain companies. And and Scott Dosick, he, he pointed out very clearly, I think this is in line with where California wants to be mm-hmm. where, where they want to be the leaders and and it's it might not really be the car companies right? it, it's really micro mobility and, and a more efficient way to get around totally and i can imagine more efficient or like yeah more effective manufacturing systems exactly. and all that sort of stuff as well which is like obviously very exciting you know and it's awesome right because we want to bring jobs to where we are right because it's it's, it's easy enough to to go to china and build something it'll probably be a lot cheaper but the what we what we wanted to do is control the the quality mm-hmm. of the product, the final quality, right? If you build it here, you you know exactly what's going out the door, yeah. right? If you get things drop shipped and then you send it direct to consumers, you don't know what they have, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's no way to really know to control that process. So from the get go, we were very clear. We, we want to make stuff here, and so the only way to do that is to make it easy and make it cost effective. Mm. Because made in America sounds awesome, but it adds a ton of cost, yeah. And the people suffering really are the consumers because they end up paying for it. And so, yeah, that, that was a big priority for us. And, and getting the grant you know, requires a lot of, uh, we, I think we wrote like a 40-page uh, request to, to get the grant. It's interesting because I think like I've worked with a whole number of, a uh, whole bunch of startups. And for them, 40-page uh, application when they could be doing a whole bunch of other things is a calculation that they say, I'm not willing to go and make that. No. Nope. So curious for you why you one you did that and then two why you went for such a large grant as well yeah so i think most people actually just go out and hire grant writers right for for a few reasons because there's very specific ways you need to write grants getting the sub captain or the submarine commander on board was probably a, a really good decision early on because you know one of his his biggest thing is is to write grant letters Right, that's that's what he does all the time. So, in terms of time consumption, it was not a big distraction. And and the biggest reason for that is we are so in line with what they're looking for mm. that there wasn't a need to really make anything up. Right, it was a very clear. It's like writing our own business plan and then just submitting that as the grant right. request. Yeah, because essentially it was. I mean, it was li- literally our our business plan 
from the get go yeah. uh, that that we turned into a grant request. Uh, and so I think it was good timing. We knew that the administration, this is what they're they're after. Uh, we knew that we had the right product, the right timing. And so it was a natural transition to 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 say let's let's go out and you know it's non dilutive. Yep. Right. It is going to help us significantly in terms of growth. And if anything, it takes away the distraction. Yes. If we get the grant, right? Because sure. now we're not out fundraising. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's obviously that calculation of like, are you in a? Uh, are you gonna get it? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, right? Like, are you gonna, I was trying to work out the kind way to say that, but it's like, yeah, are you gonna get it? It's a big risk. No, it, it's a big risk. Of course, it's a big and risk. You, you go and do the work, and then obviously it's sort of like, oh man. But I guess you do the same thing in fundraising. Yeah, sorry, in, uh, you know, right? You do. I mean, we're, we're selling to investors, or we're selling to the state. Yeah. Right, yep. they're really investing in in the company uh, by by giving us this grant because they they stand to to make something if if we succeed. So, uh, you know, I, I think everything is going to be is going to involve uh, work, whatever we do. But but this is one of those decisions that had we not made or had we not tried, it would be much harder to to make this company grow. Yep. Right. It, it require a lot more. So, so talk me through the. So, it's a twenty million dollar uh, grant, and it's for both battery manufacturing and for vehicle manufacturing as well. Yeah. So it's uh it's to bring manufacturing here. Uh, battery is a component of that, uh, but the biggest biggest component actually is for uh, the requirement to hire locally. Right. Right. So we we basically all of our assembly workers will come from California, and they'll work in California in specific areas that are underprivileged or really underdeveloped, right? It's areas that they, they, they want to put money towards uh, for development. So, you know, for for us, I think there are promises that, that we made to the state that we intend on keeping. And, mm-hmm. and actually, it's easy because that was always our plan anyways, mm-hmm. right? We, we weren't really planning on leaving uh, California. And so... So what are the natures of the promises? Yeah, so there, I think we have to hire uh, 900 people from now until 2027, Right. So, so we got about four or five years to do it. Mm-hmm. And and at the rate that we want to grow, you know, these startups are weird. There's there's really no mediocre. Yes. Right? That's that's where death is. Is it's either you 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 go insolvent or, or you, you go really large. Mm. Well it's an interesting one though because you did you you know, because you had one, you've designed a system that allow, allows you to be, you know, like to get to production tooling with a million dollars. And so you've got, you actually have capital efficiency to, to mean that you could be a low volume producer. You could be a trickle. Yeah. yeah. You, you, it's actually a conversation I've had with a number of hardware startups who are building electric motorbikes or other things in the space, which is that, you know, you can be a high, like a high margin, but low volume producer and you can make a business and it's a lifestyle business yep. and, and all that sort of stuff. But clearly that's not what you want. Yeah, because we calculated we really only need to move uh, 200 units a month to actually sustain the company very forever. Like yes. that's us, right? And and if you take hard enough, there you can sell 200 units a month pretty mm-hmm. easily uh, everywhere. So, but really, our our aspiration is is much more than that. It's it's really not a one product company, right? We like I mentioned before, it's 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 about micro mobility as a, as a space, mm-hmm. not 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 the motorcycle. Yeah, motorcycle it just happens to be the first product that. That we see the opportunities and but beyond that really the growth is is worldwide right the implications of, of this type of this way of getting around it's not clear in the u.s but if you go anywhere else besides the u.s it's, it's very clear mm-hmm. i mean i mean i grew up in vietnam uh, all the other founders did as well and, and so when you go over there or you go to india there's no question that this is how people get around yes all right for sure right and there's no question that is much more efficient yeah uh, and the amount of weight i can move around with with this small 4.3 kilowatt battery is the same amount of weight that that arivian moves people around yeah right seven thousand pound a lot more batteries and so you know i think our aspiration is not not really uh this one product so we're gonna have to really grow to to get volume mm. and and growing so at, at 900 people what would your what what sort of production volumes would you have to be doing to justify that level of employment at 900 people we're we're looking at a thousand units a month roughly mm-hmm. to, to to be able to get there and and it's not just one product yes. it's, it's the the thousand motorcycles there's UTVs ATVs so our plan for the 900 people is across the board it's not just for the anthem there's uh, ATV development there's ATV assembly there's battery assembly uh, in alcohol mm. so when you when you when we talk about it like that 20 million dollar really just scratches the surface right because there's a lot more money than than that yes 
But what the $20 million does is it allows us to kickstart. Mm-hmm. It allows us to, to have something to push off on because really we have to be a viable company. The, the money that we spend on these, the workforce mm. really can't come from the grant. It, it really needs to come from sales. Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it'll get you to the <laughs> nudge, but when you're talking those sort of volumes, it's really not actually that much of that. Yeah. That, that big a drop in the bucket. No, it's very, yeah. very little capital. Yeah. So it might sound like a lot, but it, where we're going, we're going to need a lot more than that. And, and this is just an enabler to get us to the point where, you know, there's a lot more interest in investors if, if there's more viability in the company. Yes. Right. And so for us to go out and raise bigger rounds, we got to get to a point where we're, vi- we're somewhat viable. We have a product and it's proven. So the $20 million we see as helping us uh, get through that. And, and the state sees it the same way. Mm. I mean, they, they, they know we're a startup. When, yeah. when we applied, we, we made no uh, mystery that, that we have five or six employees. Right? And that's, that's it. That's the company. Mm. I'm curious uh, if you have any sort of advice because I'm sure that there are programs like this that exist around not only, I mean, California obviously has is a unique market because it's got a lot of money and, and uh, you know, it's, it's a big sized economy and all that sort of stuff. But there will be companies around the world that are looking to build uh, manufacturing. I actually know of uh, this company, a couple of the companies that I deal with in the UK who have been able to qualify for other kind of R&D grants or other, you know, that there is money around that exists for, for companies that are trying to build manufacturing businesses. And I know that there's a lot of state level support for that, especially as we deglobalize ourselves a little bit. Yeah. But, but what is the, you know, what would your recommendations be to entrepreneurs who might be thinking about this space in terms of, yeah. you know, like making, like you say, making that calculation, do you get it? Do you not get it? What are the things that, you know, you factored in is it only because you're able to hire a nuclear sub commander or is it you know no no of, of course you know that that's one one piece of it that's tactical the, the really the, the strategic decision was was to to pick the space that you're trying to do really correctly right it, it you pick it but then you I, I think the the biggest thing is really to commit to a much bigger picture rather than you know we could have said we'll just build a, a motorcycle that's that's what we're going to do mm. Right. Our story is, is a lot bigger than that. And, and it's something that we're going to try and, and do as much as we can. Right. And, and, and the story has to be big enough for really for it to make sense. Right? Mm-hmm. A $20 million grant only makes sense if, if you're trying to return three, four hundred million dollars yes. to the state. Right. It doesn't make sense if you're trying to give them back the same amount. Yeah. So in terms of the story behind what you're doing, that's really important. And the other really important aspect is is to figure out where to dissect what you're doing now versus what you will be doing and, and seeing that difference and, and really making a clear distinction, right? Because a lot of companies either think too big or they think too small. Mm. Thinking too small has its time. Like right now, we're fully focused on the anthem. That's what we're focused on because we know that's the resources we have. But in the back of our mind, we, we know where we want to get to. But we're able to kind of go back and just separate the grant writing to really talk about the overall vision in the future, what's doable, yes, and what we're actually doing. Because right? what we're actually doing is we're just trying to get the Anthem into the market. Mm. That's, we're trying to get the first customers their bike. Yep. But you can't lose, lose sight of, of what's really important. And it's not what's necessarily important for you as a company only. It has to align with what's important for the state and what the country and what the world is trying to do. Totally. That's much more easy. And that, and that kind of the wider storytelling about micromobility, because that's one of the things obviously we try and do on the podcast and we try and do with our, with our conferences and stuff is, is being able to help you and other groups who are in that space be able to tell the story of, this, of the opportunity that exists in micromobility. What were, did you find that a hard, was that hard, that process of trying to convince, you know, folks who are in the grant programs that actually like, you know, like electric motorbikes, I know, you know, don't just look at this, like look at it in the wider context of like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Timing is everything. I mean, uh, we didn't have to do much convincing, right? I think what's going on in, in, in the world in terms of mobility, just uh, more efficient mobility. If we just took the uh, took a look at the uh, electric bicycle market mm. and how much that has grown just in the last three years, mm. right? I mean, it, it's completely blown up. And, and you extrapolate that, it, it's not a hard connection to make that, really people do prefer getting around on these smaller vehicles. Yes. Especially as we get more crowded and in, in certain cities, you're going to want that because LA traffic, if you've ever sat in LA traffic is you never want to do again, right? It, it, it's uh, terrible. Yeah. And, and so that there's 
battery shortage, right? We don't have enough mines to get the resources we need for batteries. So do you really need 100 kilowatts to move one person around? Probably not. Mm. Right. So there, there's a lot of things that are lining up uh, that makes micromobility, I think, really something to pay attention to, mainly because it's not something that's been at the forefront. Mm. I think we've been focusing on the bigger vehicles. Yeah. Oh, it's the crazy the amount of money that's going into the electric yeah. car space. It's crazy. And, you know, and, and to think also as well, there's like $100 billion that was deployed into autonomy. It's so much, yeah. And and it's where where has it gotten us, right? And it's maddening. <laughs> yeah. where, where has it gotten us? Exactly. Yeah. And and so to me, good use of resources is everything, right? And, and not when, when we talk about sustainability of our company, we don't talk about it in a way of, oh, we're making an electric vehicle. No, it, it's really sustainability across the board. Mm-hmm. How do we run our company? Where where do we use our resources? Right? Do we need to stand up a big factory and, and have paint booths and have welding robots and all that? Do you need, so just out of curiosity, to get you to production, what's the cost of the factory? Like, what do you think your CapEx uh, requirements will it's, be the factory? It's an, empty, it's an empty building. Uh, all of our tool, all of our fixtures that we, we roll the bike on mm. have wheels on them. Right. Uh, and so... We can actually rent or lease any empty building. Uh, there's no special electrical requirements. There's mm. no special water or anything, uh, any requirement, because it's essentially it's assembly. I mean, everything comes in boxes, yep. and you're putting a thing together with some wrenches, right? So all of the stations have uh, specific tools that are already part of the station. They roll around wherever you need them to, and we have a general storage area. So in terms of permitting, it's a general use space. Wow. We, we don't have paint. We don't have... Welding, we don't have any specialized permits that we need. Even running the CNC machines and all this sort of stuff, or you just order that in? We actually, we don't CNC any parts. Right. And all the parts come from, there are CNC shops all over the country. We don't need to make another one. Yeah, fair enough. Wow, that's kind of amazing. Right, especially if the, right, it's the cost. The cost has to make sense. And I think that's that's the whole point about vertical integration is, is that that's the way to bring cost down. But what if you can bring cost to where it, makes you money and and you don't need to run all of that right because now you can diversify your supply chain yeah totally i can have i can have 10 shops building me the same part totally i send them drawings right yeah yeah so amazing hey well I, i'm very conscious of time and i just I, but i just want to say thank you for, for for this it's been phenomenally interesting conversation and and uh yeah for folks who want to check it out it's it's rivid not rivid ryvid.com and are you on are you on Twitter or anything or are you 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 focus on shipping? No, I I stay away from social media. Yeah, good. This is probably a good thing. I, I stay with. Yeah, good on you. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, the company does have uh, an Instagram account uh, that that we're trying to grow. So it's a rivet underscore ev on Instagram. Then we got Facebook. Uh, yeah, fantastic. All the typical social channels that you can find. Awesome. But I try to stay off social as much as I can. Good work. Hey, well, Dong, thank you so much for your time. I really uh, really appreciate it. And looking forward to to hopefully having you on in a couple of years when you uh, when you have ATVs and UTVs and all that other sort of stuff to announce as well. Awesome. Oliver. Thank you.